You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Donald Trump had one of his little fascist light rallies last week in Tampa, Florida. And he's going to have a lot of these rallies between now and the midterm elections. Hopefully the cable news networks, the quote unquote mainstream media, not including Fox News and that, of course, learn their lessons from the general election where they would go live unedited and broadcast hours worth of Trump rallies in the post-election analysis and the accounting media critics estimated that the networks, the cable news networks, had given the Donald Trump campaign $1.5 billion-ish worth of free advertising over the course of the primaries and the general election and helped the motherfucker win the election. Now, Donald Trump is going to be holding a bunch of rallies. He's been holding his little fascist rallies ever since he got into the White House. And he's planning to hold a bunch between now and the general election to crank up his base, to get his base out there to vote. There's probably two things that you heard about if you heard about the rally last week in Tampa. First, Donald Trump thinks you need to show an ID at the grocery store to buy a gallon of milk. Therefore, you should have to show an ID to vote. Bullshit on both counts. The second thing, the crowd was screaming and yelling and chanting at the media, flipping off everyone in the press pen. At Trump rallies, the media herded into pens where they can be easily identified and where Trump at some of these rallies has encouraged the crowd to turn to the media and scream and yell and chant. Jim Acosta, reporter from CNN, did a stand-up from the rally live on Wolf Blitzer's show. And here's what he said at the end of his stand-up. And Wolf, just to give you a sense as to what's happening right now, you can hear there is a chorus of boos and other chants from this Trump crowd here in Tampa, Florida. They're saying things like CNN sucks, go home, and fake news. Wolf, obviously, all of those things are false. We're staying right here. We're going to do our job and report on this rally to all of our viewers here tonight. At first, when you watch that video and you see what's being done to the media, you feel bad for the media. And then you give it a moment's thought and you have to ask yourself... Jim Acosta, everybody else from the national media, what the fuck are you doing at this Trump rally? To CNN's credit, they are no longer broadcasting these rallies unedited, but this report that Acosta did from the rally, they went to him live at the rally, did a little bit of stand-up, introed a reported piece with clips that weren't from the rally and reporting that wasn't done at the rally, and then they go back live to the rally where the crowd is chanting, CNN sucks, fake news, and flipping off Jim Acosta. And again, the question that I think that we have to ask CNN and Jim Acosta and assignment editors and Jeff Zuckerberg, what the fuck are you doing at this rally? There is nothing in Acosta's report that couldn't have been done from outside the rally. Why does the media keep showing up at this Punch and Judy show? Why do the media keep showing up and climbing into Donald Trump's dunk tank at these rallies? Yeah, something newsworthy could happen at this rally. Something newsworthy could happen at any Donald Trump rally. But you don't have to have a pen full of reporters at that rally being used as a prop by the President of the United States to crank up his base in advance of the midterm elections to report on that rally. You can set up one camera 
in the back of the room. And Jim Acosta can be safely ensconced in CNN studios to comment on what's going on. He could be outside the building in a safe, undisclosed location. And then if something truly newsworthy goes on, he can rush in and start reporting. But there's no reason in particular for this stand-up to exist. Didn't need to set up this report inside the rally. Didn't need to go back to Acosta after the report to wrap it out. What the fuck are you doing there, Jim Acosta? Why are you allowing Trump to use you in this way? This way that by now you know you are being used. Same goes for every other representative of the mainstream media at that rally. And at all of the rallies coming up, when you show up with your CNN badges and your MSNBC badges and your NBC News badges and your ABC News badges and your Washington Post badges and your New York Times badges, you are playing into Trump's hands. The media should stop going to these rallies. Stop assisting Trump in cranking up his base. Stop allowing yourself to be used by the manipulator-in-chief in the White House in this way. Not much happens at these rallies that can't be covered off a live feed, off of one shared pool camera that all the networks have access to the feed from. We've got an election coming up, very important midterm election. It is not hyperbolic to say that our democracy, the future of the planet, future of the Atlantic Alliance, future of NATO, all of that hangs in the fucking balance. And we all need to err on the side of not doing anything that's going to help Trump turn out his deranged, shrieking, ranting voters this November. Jim Acosta, I am talking to you. No more live stand-ups. No more live, useless, unnecessary stand-ups from Trump rallies. Stop letting Trump use you. Consider it penance for all the damage and harm that you guys did in the run-up to the general election in 2016. Coming up on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast this week, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast, which is twice as long and no ads, AMP from the Sex and Kink Education YouTube channel, What's the Safe Word, joins us to discuss a phenomenon familiar to people in kink and BDSM circles, Subdrop. Hi, Dan. I'm a 40-year-old woman. I've been married for 18 years, together for 20 um, we had affairs in the beginning, and then we broke up. And after six months, we got back together and actually had real conversations about not only having sex with one person forever. I have always identified as bi. He is straight. And we've kind of had this really great understanding. We have three rules. Three rules are, number one, don't ask, don't tell. So if you happen to come across a text message or an email or a charge on a credit card, just just leave it be. With a caveat, though, if you have to know, you're allowed to ask, and each of us can choose to tell or not tell, but you can always ask. Rule number two is don't embarrass the family. Don't sleep with our children's you know, school teacher or the neighbor. Just keep it discreet and private. And rule number three is, you know, don't get sick. Use condoms. Don't get someone pregnant. Don't get pregnant. And it, it's worked well. Um, so the reason I'm calling is, I've been dating a woman recently who I really, really like, and I have told her a couple times, you know, don't fall in love. I'm clearly committed to my marriage. You know, we've always said, as long as the relationship is intact, it's fine. But she challenges that, and I don't know how to draw that boundary. How do you keep the really hot, intense new relationship, energy, all the good stuff going without kind of ruining it with the 
logistics of, hey, listen, this is never going to go any further. You lay out your rules. Don't ask, don't tell, and leave it be. That's a really good rule. I like that rule. If you have to know, you're allowed to ask and the person can tell or not tell. And then you say you're dating a woman, not just having sex with somebody else, not just a little outside sex, a little recreational outside sexual contact, but a relationship. And it seems to me that that's in conflict with the whole DADT thing. Don't ask, don't tell. Tells just aren't verbal. Tells are also situational. And to have a concurrent romantic relationship with somebody else is kind of a situational tell. That's going to come out. That's not something that you can hide or bury. So that's your first mistake. Not just that you're fucking around with somebody else on the side, but you are dating. This is a romantic connection. The other problem here is that the person that you're dating is making demands on you. She's asking, asking for things that you can't give her without really violating the not just the terms of your open relationship with your husband, but risking your marriage with your husband. She's making emotional and social demands on you. She wants to be a partner too. DADT and a partner too, those things don't really go together because DADT means discretion. DADT means we can move through life being perceived to be socially monogamous and even in a sense suspending our disbelief and perceiving each other to be in a monogamous relationship, that we are in a monogamous relationship, that you are monogamous to me and I am perceived to be monogamous to you and vice versa because whatever else goes on outside our relationship is so discreet so as to barely be detectable. Again, not just to people who aren't a part of our relationship or are outside of our relationship, but even to each other. And you can't reconcile that kind of openness agreement, the DADT-style openness agreement, with concurrent romantic relationships. Particularly if your partner is sitting there, your other partner is sitting there and saying, I am your girlfriend. I have a right to see you on Christmas. I have a right to see you on my birthday. I have a right to X, Y, and Z. The sad fact is if you are committed to your relationship, if you want to draw a boundary, you need to dump this woman. She's begun to make demands on you that you cannot fulfill without violating the terms of your open agreement with your husband. Now, you can go to your husband and renegotiate those terms. Just like at the beginning of your relationship 20 years ago, you renegotiated terms because your lived experience earlier in your relationship was in conflict with what you had agreed to and probably what you both thought you wanted because that was what you were told good people wanted. You wanted to be good people. And you realized because of the cheating early on that you had to make some other kind of compact or agreement to make your relationship work for who you two were in reality. And you can renegotiate. You can reopen those negotiations again now. And go to your husband and say, DADT has worked for a very long time, 20 years. But what I'm interested in now or what I seem to be tiptoeing toward now is polyamory, concurrent romantic relationships. And you can't do that and DADT. So if I'm not allowed to do that, and I'm not willing to allow you to do that as well, then I probably need to dump this woman. But I just wanted to check in with you first to see where you're at. And then maybe you can keep this woman in your life as your girlfriend, but that's a public role. Girlfriend. Spouse. Can't hide those people, particularly from each other. Hi, Dan. I'm a 54-year-old gay man, and I've been out since I was 15. Um, this is my question for you, and I'm, I don't know if I'm the only person that feels this way, but 
when I was young, I was very pretty. And I, I'm femme. I don't try to hide it. I don't try to be anything that I'm not. I, I know that I'm, I'm very obvious. It's very obvious that I'm gay. And when I was young and pretty and, and thin, it worked. Now I am 54. I appear a lot more masculine than I act. When I say that, I, I mean like when I put my picture on Grindr, Scrub, any of the apps, I appear to be masculine. I have a beard. I have the whole thing going with that guy's being the life. But unfortunately, once I meet the guys, we finally meet up in a coffee shop or what have you, they're instantly turned off by this. I've tried, I shaved off my beard and I've tried just going out as me and, and it still seems to be the same thing. I really don't at 54 years old understand all of these little names that we all have now, such as Otter or Daddy or any of those. They don't make sense to me. And I'm not saying I don't know what they mean. I'm saying for me, they don't work. I'm just a person. But I certainly, even at 54, feel very uncomfortable being a daddy. Actually, I, I would probably feel more comfortable being, being a mommy because, I, I, like I said, I'm, I'm much more feminine than I am a masculine guy. Which brings me to another quick thing is I'm also versatile, versatile top, bottom, which throws people off, too, because they just, <laughs> you know, the whole big confusion thing. They see my picture, they think I'm a top, and they meet me, and if they're not turned off by the fact that I'm feminine acting, then they automatically assume that I'm a bottom. And I just, I, I, I don't know. I'm just really confused. I'm having like an identity crisis at 54 on what I actually can do to meet guys, yet not turn them off at the beginning when we first meet and have everything out there. You have to stop wasting your time on guys who are looking for mask top daddy types. And that means just putting it out there on your grinder profile, putting yourself out there in all your complications and contradictions. And you're not really that complicated or that contradictory. You've aged into a more kind of daddy-ish look, but you're still the guy you are, your authentic self, which is a little bit more femme presenting. And I think you should just say that. There are guys out there in the world who are attracted to more feminine guys. I am one of those Guys, we hear all about the mask for mask boys these days and people talk about mask for mask like it's some new thing and it's a tragedy and it's a sad indictment of where the gay community has gone and where gay men's sexual fantasies and their roles and archetypes have gone. And, that, and that's just bullshit. This is not a new thing. Mask for mask now, you know what that was called 15, 20, 30 years ago? Straight acting and appearing. I will take mask for mask over straight acting and appearing any day. And there's a lot of people out there who are suggesting that the mask for mask boys are playing, are performing masculinity. And, and that's true. You do see those guys who the masculinity is performative, that this is an act and they have to edit and police themselves and they are monitoring their every expression, every hand movement, every step, every leg cross to make sure it is mask presenting. But then there are some guys who are just kind of authentically masculine-ish 
And this isn't performative for them. And we don't want to lump the, the, the fakers in with the authentic mask guys and condemn them all. We have to allow for the fact that some people's authentic gender expression is traditionally masculine or traditionally feminine. And that's okay too. It's the people who are paranoid about seeming – the gay guys who are paranoid about seeming the least bit feminine – who are annoying. You, caller, you are one of those gay guys. You are slightly femme or femme or very femme in your mannerisms, in your behavior, in your interests. And you just have to own that and put that out there. And there will be guys who are into you and into that conflict and into that contrast between your look, that beard, your daddyish presentation, and your more feminine soul side presentation, your mannerisms. And those guys are likely to embrace your versatility. So when you put it out there on Grinder, put it all out there on Grinder, and then you won't find yourself in a coffee shop with someone who is really invested in you being a mask top ass ramming daddy type because they'll know. Those guys will know not to waste their time on you because you aren't that even though at first glance that may be how you would be classified or how you appear or how some people might assume you move through the world sexually based on that beard and your age. So put it out there. Mask presenting in a photograph but famish in reality and in person and if you can't deal, fuck off. Say it like that and you will attract the guys who not only can deal but who are into it, who are into you and into your contrasts and conflicts and how interesting and complicated a person you are now, the interested complicated person you've aged into being with your authentic sort of femme personality and self – now, rolled out, now moving through the world in a more cliche mask presenting look and type and body. Enjoy that prison. Enjoy that the tension there. That itself for many guys is going to be sexy. But you're going to have to work maybe a little bit harder to find those guys and put it out a little bit more emphatically to attract them. Hey, Dan. Uh, I'm calling from Dublin in Ireland. And um, basically my question is, when do you leave an ex and not contact them? And when do you have an excuse to confront them about their shitty behavior? Uh, so a bit of background. I'm from Dublin, but was living on the East Coast and met a guy. And we were together for 14 months in total. And during that time, my visa ran out and I had to move home and kind of wait out some visa regulations until I could come back. But he really pushed to go a long distance. We were planning to live together like we were in it. The relationship wasn't perfect. One of the huge issues was he essentially hid me. Like, I never met his friends. He didn't really come out and meet my friends. We traveled across America together. We went to Mexico. He came over to Ireland. Uh, Like, we traveled a lot, and there was never a single picture of me anywhere, nor did he ever mention that he had a girlfriend on social media or anything. Uh, I wasn't allowed to post pictures with his face. And yes, this should have been a red flag, but I had been in an abusive relationship before and had also been kind of hidden. And I think I just thought it was normal. Um, But basically in April, uh, we planned to travel across Europe in June, but then some really cheap flights came up. So I said, hey, I can come over and visit you for a week. And he texted me back and said, yes, please. I love you. Let's talk about it tomorrow. And then I never heard from him again. Never. I thought he had died. Uh, And 
I spent about two weeks during the start, like within the first three days of him kind of not responding. I actually ended up in hospital and texted him going, hi, I'm scared. Please call your girlfriend. Nothing. And then I spent about three weeks maybe trying to get in touch with him, calling him, texting him. Um, not excessively, definitely not as much as I wanted to. But I think I was pretty generous as well, saying, look, if this is over, if you've met someone, if you cheated, if long distance is hard, I get that. But let's have the conversation. This was generally a good relationship. Let's just respect it. Nothing. Um, so I find it really hard to cope with it and have a lot of trust issues now and feel quite worthless and dehumanized. And I'm trying to grapple with that. The thing is, he's now with someone else. She is posting pictures of him online. He's not posting pictures, but she's allowed to. Um, And I'm going to be in his city in August, end of August, start of September. And I don't know whether I should turn up and go, hey, you fucking owe me a conversation. You owe me an explanation and an apology. Or if that would just be painful and slightly useless. I think for me, it's probably not going to undo any of the damage at this stage. It's done. He doesn't have a good excuse. But surely these people don't get to just get away with this stuff, right? Surely there should be a moment where they have to confront the person they've hurt and apologize. I don't really know. So any advice would be great. Thanks. Unfortunately, people do get away with stuff in the romantic sphere that they shouldn't be able to get away with, but they get away with it all the time. People ghost on people all the time. All's fair, they say, or they used to say, and and if anyone is out there still saying it, they should really stop, but all's fair in love and war. We probably need a relationship version of the Geneva Conventions to cover those things that aren't fair in love. I'm not talking about things that are criminal. Those things are, of course, not fair in love. You're not allowed to abuse a partner in a way that is criminal, but there are lots of things people do to their partners that aren't criminal, that aren't fair and aren't kind, and people get away with those things all the time. What you want is closure, and as I've said about 700,000 million times, closure is not a gift you're given by another person. Closure isn't a gold watch someone gives you about your retirement from a relationship. Closure is something you do for yourself. You close that fucking door and you move the fuck on. And you learn whatever lessons you need to learn from that relationship, which is not to say that you were the bad actor here. But there's some shit that you should be aware of now. This is the second time you've been in a relationship with someone who hid you. Do not be hidden. Being hidden. Lots of different types of people have experience with that and how traumatizing that can be. Trans folks who date cis folks who don't want their friends and families to know that they're attracted to or, or with someone who is transgender and they hide the transgender boyfriend or girlfriend. Large women who date guys who are don't want their friends to think they're into bigger women or attracted to this particular bigger woman. And so they hide the big woman. They hide the girlfriend who's larger. Gay guys have experience with this. Gay guys, particularly younger gay guys. I did this. A lot of us date guys when we are young who are not yet out of the closet and we are the hidden secret boyfriends and we'd submit to that and we sneak around the dirty little secret. That's no fun. And people of color, people of color who date folks, come romantically involved with folks who hide them. Hide the black boyfriend, hide the Hispanic or or Muslim girlfriend because their families are so racist and bigoted. 
And what you learn when you've been hidden once or twice is not to put up with that shit ever again. And so what you say to yourself coming out of this relationship, you may never know why this guy ghosted you. Something was up. It is not normal to hide someone that you've been dating for more than a year. Something was up. There was some reason particularly that he wanted to hide you because he ain't hiding his new girlfriend. I'm curious how you managed to find your way to his new girlfriend's Instagram account if he isn't posting any pictures of her. But all right. That he hid you for a reason. I don't know what that reason is. But going forward, just like I said to myself when I was 20, I am never going to be anybody's secret again. No closeted guy's secret boyfriend ever again. You say to yourself, I am never going to be anybody's secret girlfriend ever again. That's the closure that you want. You learn that lesson. You close that door. And a way for having learned that lesson, you're less likely to be abused like this by someone else in the future. Your relationships in the future will be healthier because of the lesson you learned in this relationship or in your last two relationships where you were the hidden secret girlfriend. Never ever be that hidden secret girlfriend again. All right. You're also going to be in his city soon. You might run into him. All's fair. Love and war. Not war. Love still. Anything that's not criminal. Fair-ish. Not good. Not decent. Not kind. But allowed. Permissible. People can get away with it. I don't think things you get away with are necessarily fair. Fair doesn't just mean you can get away with it. But you, if for your own sense of sanity, you want to show up someplace where you know he's going to be and walk up to him and say, dude, what the fuck? That's fair. You can totally do that. You're not likely to get an answer that will satisfy you. You're not likely to get an answer that's better than the lesson that you've learned in this relationship, which is not to put up with this kind of shit, the kind of shit he put you through, the kind of shit your previous boyfriend put you through ever again. Never again the secret. Hi, Dan, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. Um, so I'm a uh, straight guy in my 20s living in the Midwest, and I guess my question is about being unconventionally straight. Ever since I was a kid, I've always been interested in characters like Wonder Woman and Xena Warrior Princess, and while I don't necessarily want a woman like that exactly, I've always been drawn to basically a truly egalitarian relationship, at least from my perspective. Um, a woman who's strong just like I am, I can be strong too. And there's no subtle woman on the bottom, man on the top kind of stuff going on. I find that most straight girls that I've interacted with are, even if they say they want an equal relationship, there's some sort of subtle I guess, assumption that I will be the stronger one of the two or that they don't want to take charge maybe the way that I would like them to. And I know that's definitely not the norm and I accept that it's not the common thing. And I guess my question is whether or not it's really a legitimate desire to acknowledge and if it's something that I should actually keep in mind when I'm seeing people or maybe I should just toss it to the side and if it happens, it happens, but if it doesn't, it doesn't. Um, I guess another important part is that I am still a virgin in my 20s. It's mainly because of my religious upbringing, and in the past year and a half, I have let that go, and I've been going on dates and working on myself and seeing people and dancing with girls and that kind of thing. So 
I've expanded my horizons a bit um, just on a basic level. So I know that I might be reaching a bit here, but I just want to see if there's anything about my approach that I can refine or change, or maybe I just need to be told that I need to slow down. Who knows? So usually when a guy calls or I'm talking to some straight guy and he cites Wonder Woman or Xena, the warrior princess, as his ideal mate, what comes next is he wants a femdom relationship. Yeah. <laughs> that he wants to be submissive to the powerful woman. But that's not what you want. Yeah, exactly. Not exactly. I don't think so, no. What do you mean by not exactly I don't think so, no? You're equivocating um, so, there. And is that because you're embarrassed to say that that is indeed what you want, a femdom relationship? Because a lot of people are embarrassed to say that or nervous about saying that. And so they'll kind of yeah. ask for what they want without owning what they want. What is it that you want? I think the reason why I hesitate is because I don't think I'm opposed to it, but it's not what I'm actively seeking either. More equivoc- wait, wait. No, that's just more equivocation. What do you talk <laughs> off about? What do you think about when you think about like the woman of your dreams? What does it look like? And, and maybe I'm being too, a little too hard on you and, and I should let it go. No, no. But, in, but it's, no, almost, it's almost invariable when somebody says, oh, my ideal is Wonder Woman, Xena, that you know, Wonder Woman and her magic rope, like that's what they want. They want the Amazon who's in charge. Yeah. I, I, think, I think that's accurate. I think that the reason – why I hesitate is because I think based on people I've talked to and what I've seen in porn and stuff, it's very black and white. Like it's either like total like submission and degradation and all that stuff. I think that's the part that turns me off, but I definitely like the idea of the domination part. So I think I'm just hesitating because I'm not in the black or white kind of a thing, but right, right, right. I'm no, definitely outside, the short answer is yes. Okay. Outside of, say yes. Outside, <laughs> outside of porn, no um, relationship with dom-sub dynamics is like degradation and bondage all the time. And it, it, it tends yeah, to be yeah. something that, you know, maybe is on the back burner or it's this subtle vibe or th- hum in the relationship. And then at times exactly. it's, it's more exaggerated and pronounced because you're having sex or you're, you're you know, turning it up to 11 because you both enjoy it and, and it's there and you can turn it up to 11 and it's a part of your relationship dynamic. It's not the only dynamic in the relationship. That would be exhausting. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, people talk about 24-7, 365 dom-sub relationships and somebody living in a cage in the basement and that doesn't really happen. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, it, that sounds a lot more reasonable. <laughs> it's, 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 it's something that can – enhance a relationship if it's what both people want it's a it's a spice it's a flavor uh it can often be you know detectable like that spice and flavor is there and sometimes you know you dump all the curry powder in this weekend because you're just really going for it yeah if we were to rewind and i kept that in mind then my answer is yes then (laughs) okay (laughs) i would encourage you to get involved in the the bdsm community leather fetish community depending on where you live Get yourself to a munch, meet some people who are in the kink community, who are in the quote-unquote kink lifestyle, and you'll see the different ways in which people structure their relationships when there's a dom-sub dynamic that both people enjoy and it's completely consensual and both people opt into. Uh, Your Mm -hmm. particular challenge as a straight guy is that powerful women get it through their heads that that's a problem for most straight men. And they will downplay yeah. it or suppress it. 
And sometimes, you know, there's a lot of people, straight guys out there with dominant female partners, and often they had to not grow them, not, you know, train their partner to be dom in a way, but find a woman who that was something that worked for them and that they responded to and really empower that woman to like take that power role in the relationship. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it. Yeah, that makes sense. And the bigger the city that you live in, the more options you're going to have. Kinky hmm. people like gays and lesbians, like queers are a tiny percentage of the population. I think there are probably more kinky straight people in, in real numbers than there are queer people in their entirety. But in bigger mm-hmm. cities where people clump up, you're likelier to have more choices and they're likely to be the kind of kink scene that will attract women and men and others and, and, and open that up for them and give them yeah. permission to, well, and to I, go I'm for what they're far from Chicago right now. So <laughs> get your <laughs> you ass to Chicago. I'm sure there's an organized kink scene. I'm sure there are munches in Chicago. If you just start Googling, you'll find your way in. And then you should be honest with the women you date. You know, people who are kinky, you move on every front. You go to IML in Chicago and there's two kinds of people you meet. You meet people who were kinky when they were 13 years old and you meet the people who fell in love with those people Mm. and grew Mm -hmm. into it. So move on all fronts, like get involved in the kink scene, but also continue to date women that you meet through Tinder, through Bumble, but be honest about your kinks. Be honest about your sexual interests and that you want a a female-led relationship, that you are interested in, in femdom dynamics and you should also do a little reading and i would recommend playing well with others your field guide to discovering navigating and exploring the kink leather and bdsm communities by lee harrington and molina williams it's a terrific primer it's a terrific entry point and will it and awesome. it'll, it'll it'll reset your expectations so they're more realistic if your expectations about yeah. kink and bdsm and dom sub and femdom have all been set by pornography mm-hmm. you have unrealistic expectations yeah. 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 And I think part of it is that it, it seems like this big, scary thing. And I think maybe it's a lot more inclusive and friendly than I think it is. So maybe I just need to explore, like you said. You know, when people write about their kinky relationship or make your porn is made about kinky relationships, they don't make porn about making breakfast on Sunday morning or <laughs> cleaning the house or hanging out with your parents or your friends the porn is made about yeah. those moments when you turn it up to 11. Nobody can live at 11. Yeah, that, that's very true. You that's a good point. <laughs> you, don't, you don't live vanilla uh, sex and, and, and erotics and, and, and vanilla uh, sexual dynamics at 11 all the time either in a, in a vanilla relationship. That, you can't do that. And it, it mm-hmm. doesn't work in yeah. DS, BDSM either. You can't live it at 11. And sometimes it's just a subtle little thread that runs through the relationship where the dominant partner has the right to push that button when they want to push that button. But otherwise, the the kink or the the submission of the dominance can seem dormant or or absent, but it's there. It's something that both partners can opt into when they want to. You literally put words to what I couldn't put words to. So (laughs) I really appreciate that. That's why I get paid the big (laughs) podcasting bucks. Exactly. <laughs> Good luck to you. And, and one last bit of advice. Your kinks ain't cancer. You meet somebody through a non-kinky uh, space and you want to tell them about your kinks. It's not a tearful confession. These aren't yeah. – it's not a cancer diagnosis. It's Christmas morning. These are gifts. These, these are presents. This is something exciting about me that I wanted to share with you. Maybe it means we're not compatible, 
And you need to steal yourself because a lot of people, their first reaction when someone that they're interested in or they've fallen in love with or developed feelings for and they reveal a kink is negative because we live yeah. in a sex negative, yeah. kink negative culture. And people will say no, like, oh my God, no, when they should just say, really, oh, and allow you to yeah. keep talking and let them sit with it. And often, you know, when the kink is confessed, somebody has a negative reaction. And then if you revisit that couple in a few years' time, they're at IML. They're at the big kink yeah, event exactly. together and the vanilla partner has grown into it and discovered that it works for them too and that there's pleasure and joy for them there as well. And most guys in femdom relationships, it was his idea, not her idea. Yeah, so, so don't, <laughs> that's very true. <laughs> don't fear the initial negative reaction. Yeah, I, I, I've had a little bit of practice, but I think that little bit of negative reaction I've had before is probably what has scared me. So it can be very I inhibiting. Feel... It can be very inhibiting because we all fear rejection. But if somebody has a colossally yeah. negative reaction, if they consider it disqualifying, that's rejection you want to invite because you don't want to waste your time on that person. She's not the right partner for you. So if you tell yeah. someone and she's yeah. like, "Deal breaker, I'm out," you should be like, "Okay, thank you." Goodbye. Mm -hmm. If you tell someone, she's like, yeah. oh my God, I don't know how I feel about that. I need to think about that. We should keep talking about that. That might be the woman whose feet you kiss every day when you get home from work five years from now. Yeah. Awesome. Good luck. Well, thank you so much, Dan. I you're, appreciate it. You're welcome. Hey, Dan. You know, I was curious. I have this friend who I met six months ago. He's a really good guy. And um, he started dating this other this other girl recently was also really fantastic. I'm really happy for them. But then I, don't know, I heard rumblings of the fact that when, when we go, when we go out, we go out pretty frequently on the weekends, right? I hear that apparently he's doing cocaine, right? Um, he hasn't told me about it, but I heard it from two different people now. And, you know, I don't know. It's a weird, he's a pretty intense guy. And while we're tight, we've only known each other for six months, so it's not like a you know a long friendship. And I don't know, we're you know we're not in our twenties, so it's I don't know. He's a grown man, and so I don't want to tell him you know how to live his life or something like that. But at the same time, I I worry about him, you know, because you know if he's just doing cocaine by himself, you know, in another room and then coming out. It doesn't seem not that doing cocaine socially is is bad, but you know what I'm getting at. I mean, if for, if you drink alcohol by yourself and get drunk, that's probably more worrying than if you go out with friends and have a drink. That's what I'm getting at. Even though cocaine is not good under any circumstances, you know what I'm saying. So I don't know. I was just wondering what you think. Like on the one hand, I would want to approach him and tell him, "Listen, man, I, I heard you know you're doing cocaine, and I'm worried about you, man. I don't want you to be doing that." Then, you know, I don't want to get anyone who's told me in, in hot water for telling me, you know, because he hasn't told me and he'd wonder how I found out. And I don't know how he'd take it. He might get really pissed or something. And on the one hand, I think, well, maybe even if he's pissed and I mean, God forbid our friendship ended over it or so. I don't know if that would happen. But if it did, you know, it, it would be at least I was looking out for him in his best interests. But at the same time, I guess maybe selfishly, like I wouldn't want our friendship to end, so I wouldn't want to do something that even if it was in his self-interest, like I would almost, I wouldn't want to lose him as a friend. So I don't know if it's a drug problem. Maybe if you have an idea of how to approach it or I don't know. I'm happy to tackle this question. We say all the time, this is a sex and relationship advice podcast. You may not be having sex with this guy, but you have a relationship with him. You are a friend. We have relationships with people we aren't 
sexing and sometimes we have sex with people we aren't relationshiping. Anyway, not all drug use is abuse. And I think you can make a distinction between doing cocaine and abusing cocaine. Doing cocaine is risky. Cocaine is very addictive and it can blow up your life in a spectacular fashion, just like alcohol can. And I think you're right that if somebody is doing cocaine alone, just like if somebody is drinking alone, that can be a sign of a problem. Are there other signs though? Is his life on fire? Are his relationships suffering? Is he screwing up his professional life? Is he screwing up his schooling if he's still in school? I think those are all questions you need to ask yourself before you stage an intervention. Also, these people who are telling you that he's doing cocaine in the other room before he joins you at the party, who the fuck are they? How long have they known him? Why are they passing this off to you to handle? And if they're just mentioning this casually, okay, then they're not passing it off to you to handle necessarily, but why then do you feel obligated to step up and slap the cocaine out of his sinuses? Perhaps because you are noticing lots of problems here, not just the doing cocaine alone. Should you say something? A lot of people are hesitant to confront their friends when their friends are setting their lives on fire with whatever accelerant is handy and that they prefer. And they're afraid to lose their friends by confronting their friends. But you can lose a friend to confrontation or you can lose a friend to cocaine. One way or the other, if somebody is seriously heading off the rails while their friends and family and lovers all stand around with their hands in their pockets, you're going to lose your friend. And at six months, how much do you have to lose, really? How close are you? Before I said anything to him, if I were in your position, I would speak to his other friends. I would maybe touch base with some friends that have known him longer than you've known him and express concern. You really like him and you're worried because of this one detail that you shared with us. He's doing cocaine alone. Have they noticed any serious deterioration in his relationships, in his professional life? It's connection with friends and family is the drug taking over. Has he moved from occasional slash responsible, although very dangerous use of cocaine to abusing cocaine? And if his friends, other people who know him well, who may have known him longer than you've known him, agree that this is becoming a problem, link arms and all of you march in there and confront him together. And you might lose him for a while. Often when you confront a friend who has a drug problem, you lose that friend if they're not ready to pick friends and interpersonal relationships over the drug. But you don't necessarily lose that person permanently. Let that person know if they get angry and they storm out, if they pick cocaine over you at that moment, that you still love them and you still want to be their friends. And when they're ready for friendship, if they need help, you'll be there for them then. Hey, Dan. Um, I just got back from my personal trainer and I have a question. Um, it's not as sexy fun as it sounds, but um, he talks a lot about his church and the people at his church, and he's really involved in his church. And I am at a point where I either need to buy more sessions or not. Basically, I'm just wondering if I should say to him when I see him next, you know, what do you think about same-sex marriage? What do you think about queer people? I'm straight myself, but I hope to be a strong ally and have already done things like, you know, when we chat about the weekend, say I was at Pride or I, I talk about my partner as my partner. And there's never been an indication that he has a problem. We're also in Canada where I feel like to some extent, a lot of this questions about same-sex marriage, for example, have been put a little more to bed 
than elsewhere in the world. But I don't know. I just wonder whether it makes sense to just sort of check in with him about it before I continue to work with him or if I should just take the fact that he's given me absolutely no indication that he has a problem and um, roll with it. I have been terrified of the gym for a long time and finally took plunging at a trainer and it's been awesome. So I do want to keep the relationship good if possible, but don't want to be supporting someone who is homophobic. A lot of powerful, fully politicized, fully weaponized evangelical Christian leaders have worked hard, have spent decades working to make homophobia synonymous with evangelical Christian. The polling, however, at least on the issue that you cite on same-sex marriage, shows that there is a distinct and wide and growing generational divide. Pew poll from 2017 found that support for same-sex marriage among evangelical Christians had grown from 27% in the early 2000s to 35% now. Not a 10-point jump, but significant. The most interesting data in this Pew Research poll, though, was about young evangelical Christians, which they tagged or pegged as those who were born after 1964. I was born in 1964. I feel like I'm pretty old, but they say that those are young evangelical Christians, Gen X and millennial evangelical Christians. I assume your personal trainer at your gym is not Pat Robertson's age, is not Tony Perkins's age. I assume he is not my age. I assume he's probably significantly younger than I am. Most of the personal trainers I see at the gyms I frequent are in their 20s, in their 30s, millennials. And support for same-sex marriage among young evangelical Christians is at 47%. Nearly half of all evangelical Christians born after 1964 support same-sex marriage. I bet if you broke that data out even further and sliced it a little more thinly and just looked at evangelical Christians under 30 or under 40, that it would be majority support for same-sex marriage. So odds are Coin flip, at least half that your personal trainer, who didn't rise to the bait when you mentioned going to Pride, supports same-sex marriage. And again, the, the political wing of the evangelical movement has worked so hard to make homophobia and opposition to same-sex marriage and queer existences synonymous with Christianity, not just evangelical Christianity, but Christianity itself created such a PR problem for Christianity in the process that – I sometimes fall prey to the same impulse that, that you suffered. Somebody tells me that they're an evangelical Christian. They go to some mega church. They have this personal relationship with Jesus. They were born again. I think, hates me, bigot, anti-same-sex marriage. And I have to remind myself that looking at the data, that ain't necessarily so. In fact, it is a stereotype that political evangelical Christians have worked hard to promote and create. They say that same-sex marriage, they say the existence of queer people at all is an attack, some sort of existential attack on Christianity. It's anti-Christian. We can't let them get away with that because there are plenty of Christians out there who are queer themselves. There are plenty of Christians out there who are supportive of same-sex marriage. My mom is always the example I like to cite. My mom talked a lot about her church. My mom was a Jesus person in a profound way. And my mom fully supported same-sex marriage, queer people adopting, the rights of trans people, reproductive freedom. My mom was a liberal, church-going Jesus person. Maybe your personal trainer is as well. If you are uncomfortable writing checks and giving tips to someone who is anti the rights of your queer friends, ask. Ask him. 
We talk a lot about Jesus, we talk a lot about church. Not all evangelical Christians are anti-gay, but I'm just curious where you come down on the marriages of my friends who are queer. See what he says. Odds are, if he's under 30 or under 35 or under 40, he's down with it. He's fine with it. He's okay with it. And you can continue to patronize your personal trainer with a clear conscience. Hi, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old bi male, and I had a quick question. Is it an unrealistic expectation to be hard every time I bottom with a man? I often have trouble getting hard with men, but hate bottoming without being hard. And do you have any advice if someone doesn't respect this wish? And yes, I have been hard as a bottom before, and no, it's possible. So you're going to have sex with a dude. Sometimes you have a hard time getting hard with a dude. You might be with a dude who wants to fuck you, and you might want him to fuck you, but you don't want to be fucked unless your dick is hard. But you can lay that out there as a condition of anal sex, that you need to be hard to enjoy being penetrated. And then do what it is that you need to do prior to penetration, concurrent with penetration, that gets you hard. And if there are things that the guy can do to help you along, to to get you hard and keep you hard while he fucks you, let him know what those things are. Is it a certain kind of dirty talk? Is it nipple play? Is it going slow? Is it going fast? What is it? What is it about anal penetration that turns you on? And what are the accessories? How can you accessorize around anal penetration so that it is more enjoyable for you? And lay those things out there. And if you're clear with people that this is a condition, before we can do X, Y has to happen. And actually, Y has to happen the entire time we're doing X for Y to work for me. They can't bitch. I mean, they can, but then you tell them to pull their pants up and they get the fuck out of your ass and the fuck out of your apartment. You need what you need to enjoy the sex that you're having with somebody else. And your enjoyment is an aspect of your consent. And when your enjoyment isn't there or your enjoyment evaporates, you have a right to withdraw your consent. It needs to be pleasurable. It needs to be pleasurable for you. Not everybody has to be hard during anal. There's a lot of people out there who enjoy anal penetration and anal sex and just want to lay back and be receptive and not think about their own boners and just receive. You aren't one of those guys. Your dick needs to be in play. Your dick needs to be hard. You need to be boned to enjoy this part of dude on dude sex. Just put it on the table and stick up for yourself. Hello, I am a single straight mom, and I'm in a great relationship with a single straight dad. When we first started dating, his oldest daughter was in a lesbian relationship and was voted prom king in her high school. I had only known of her at that point, and I hadn't met her yet. Since then, I've only met her once, and we became friends on Facebook just before she moved out. I can see on Facebook that her friends are calling her him and he, but my boyfriend still calls her his daughter and uses feminine pronouns. And so I looked at her thing and it says trans male. So I don't know what I'm supposed to do if I talk to her. I'm almost not engaging in a conversation because I don't want to be offensive. I asked my boyfriend and he said that she had come out to him shortly before she left as being trans, but that she didn't really explain to him what that meant and that she wasn't having a sex change, so he didn't know what that meant as far as that goes. And so until she told him something that he was supposed to do, he just was going to keep treating her like he always has since she was born. And I can understand that from his point of view, but I'm new in her life and I don't know what the correct 
procedure there is. I don't know if I'm supposed to follow suit with her dad because I'm in a relationship with him. I don't know. I want to engage with this girl. I want to get to know her. I want to become friends with with her or him, and I just don't know how to approach that. If you want to get to know him, if you want to get to know this boy, if you want to become friends with him, you're going to want to stop using her and girl and she when you refer to him. You know how he identifies. You've been to his Facebook page. You've seen how the other important people in his life, his friends, treat him. The pronouns that they use, they respect his identity as a trans male. And on some weird, tortured technicality, his father refuses to respect his son's gender identity. You need to embrace this boy's gender identity. And I think you need to get on your boyfriend's case about what he's doing because what he's doing is cruel and clueless and unnecessary. If he needs more input from his son, he should ask for it. If he needs clarifications from his son about his intentions when it comes to gender confirmation surgery or sex change operations in that archaic phrase, he should ask his son for those clarifications and have a conversation, initiate a conversation with his son. What he's basically done is frozen him out. His son came out to him as trans shortly before moving out of the house. And his father continued to refer to him using female pronouns and probably the name that he was given at birth that he no longer uses. And what was communicated to him by his father's actions was hostility and rejection. And he's probably withdrawn and pulled away from his father because of the rejection that was communicated to him by his father's actions. Every time his father refers to him using female pronouns, it damages their relationship. He's chipping, the dad, chipping away at his relationship with his child every time he uses female pronouns or that kid's previous name. In the end, he's going to devastate and destroy that relationship. You should say this to him. You should play this recording for him. Make him listen to what I am saying right now. And then urge him to call his son and apologize. Reach out to his son. Ask for whatever additional information about his son's intentions when it comes to hormone treatments or surgery. Not that either is required for the people in a trans person's life to respect that trans person's transition and gender identity. Hi, Dan. I'm a 38-year-old straight male calling from Denver, Colorado. I've been reading your column for over 20 years and have learned so much from your advice, and now I finally need your help. I recently dropped a huge bomb on my wife of nine years. During a discussion regarding our sex life, I said that I wanted us to start sleeping with other people together to start swinging. At the end of this discussion, she agreed that we needed to have more sex and get creative to spice things up, that she needed time to think and process the whole swinging idea. Since the talk two months ago, we have stepped up our sexual frequency, and it's been great. I finally had to tell her about my desire to swing because it was something that I have always wanted to do. However, I've never made it an ultimatum or cause of entry into a relationship with me in the past. So it was on me for not bringing it up and making it a priority before. In the past, my wife has shown interest in women, mainly through her porn preferences and very limited fantasy talk. Since that initial discussion, the topic of swinging, or as she calls it, my end goal, has come up a couple of times. She hasn't shut it down. Though I'm thinking that so far this is all a positive sign that she's still at least open to the idea. 
She told me that I was in charge of this process. Now, I know that it's all about baby steps. This weekend, we're going to a strip club for her first time. I mentioned to her that this is a safe place for the baby step of seeing me get attention and for her to interact with a woman. Additionally, in regards to me being in charge of this process, she recently told me she feels like I've been trying to coach her. And while I admit I'm not a good coach, but talking about things makes her anxiety rise. And now she'd prefer me to lead by example, which I have my own self-conscious fears about pushing her too far, too fast, but I guess it's one step at a time. My question is this, am I missing anything? Well, I know this is a process and journey as one partner typically wants to open up a relationship before the other does. I'm not trying to get out, and I want no other partner in life other than my wife. She's perfect for me in so many ways. I just want us to have sex with others as well. So I want to make sure I do this right. I know I have to be patient. However, it's something I've wanted for two decades. So in my mind, I've already reconciled with any dissonance or potential issues confronting our marriage, which I'm sure she is trying to process that too. I'm trying to be communicative and listen and react appropriately as well be open and honest about my desires and their meanings, all still while trying to take things slow. Do you have any other advice? I'd greatly appreciate it. My first piece of advice is to jump in that time machine. You've known for two decades that your preferred relationship model included swinging, some degree of openness and allowance for sexual contact with others outside of your marriage. And that is something you might have wanted to tell the woman that you married before you married her, because busting that out after you marry someone is particularly if you knew about that well in advance isn't fair and doesn't create any obligation on your wife's part to come through with that to have sex with other people or give her consent for you to have sex with other people and then you're going to be at an impasse and somebody's gonna have to pay the price of admission or you're gonna have to end the marriage that sounds dire i actually don't think you're at the point where this marriage has to end or is even imperiled i am a little worried though by your wife's request that you quote unquote lead by example what she's saying is, I don't want to talk about this. Just you do things or set things up or put us in situations or, or scenarios where this could happen. And that is risky and dangerous. What your wife is saying is, I'm uncomfortable talking about sex. I'm uncomfortable talking about particularly this kind of sex. So I know you want it. Maybe I'm open to it. Surprise me. That will lead to disaster. You will step on some landmine that you didn't know was there. You will go too far, too fast in her view and explode your marriage. So you need to reject that out of hand. I can't lead by example, honey. This is something that we both have to do or not do. And whatever it is we do do has to be mutually agreeable and, and mutually desired, or it's going to risk everything that we have, all that's good about our relationship. It'll put us in a place where you may end up feeling violated in some way, or betrayed, and I could end up then feeling tricked because you asked me to lead and so I led and then here we are having this fight about where I led us kind of at your request. And then here we are having this fight about where I led us with your permission and I didn't intend to lead us anywhere that would trigger or upset you or blow up our marriage and here we are, oh my God. No, no surprise me with swinging. No surprise me with openness. No surprise me with a four-way. Nuh-uh. If your wife has a hard time conversing about sex, looking you in the eye. There's this advice that people give parents who need to have the sex convo with their kids and it's too awkward and their kids are just dying inside and the parents look at the way the kids are reacting and, and, and clam up, which is to have that conversation in a car where you don't have to look into each other's eyes, where you're sitting side by side looking straight ahead and you can have that conversation. That might work. Also, via text or email, like let's continue to have this conversation. It's difficult for, for us to have it face-to-face -face for whatever reason. 
a lot of people feel more free to really share their feelings and be open if they can organize their thoughts in an email. So let's talk about this via email. And that's how I'm going to lead. That's how I will lead by example. I'm going to write you an email laying out my desires, my fears, and my priorities. And you, of course, are always my first priority. And then that's my example. And then you respond to that email. You follow my example. And we have this conversation there while continuing to take the baby steps that we both already agreed to visiting that strip club. Nothing is going to happen beyond some attention being paid. You interacting with women, maybe getting a lap dance, me interacting with uh, another woman, maybe getting a lap dance and we'll see how that feels, but there will be no sex, just erotic attention that then we will take home and plow into each other. And then we can via email if necessary or sitting side by side in a car if necessary process that and talk about how that felt, about how that baby step went and what the next baby step might be if we're both willing to take that next step. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. Um, I'm a 30-something gay dude living in a suburb on the East Coast. Um, I was hoping you could help me unpack some weird preoccupations I have with uh, this poorly lit, low-budget BDSM porn I watched. Um, just for a little background, I have some limited experience in BDSM, but not a lot. But this one porn I watched kind of poked a little bit hole in this porn is fantasy, not reality thing that I know is true. Um, basically, I mean, the actual activities in this particular scene weren't so far out there in terms of other stuff I've seen. Um, but what was weird about it is that the sub about halfway through seemed to drop. I mean, he, he stopped the scene. He, you know, pushed the top off of him. And then, like, and that was all, and this wasn't one continuous take that someone left going on. They, they edited this very clearly, and they showed what I am guessing was some attempts at giving the sub aftercare. I mean, the top and um, someone else on set were, like, trying to get him to drink water, rubbing his back, um, trying to, you know, keep him, like, breathing and, under, and, and calm. And then scene just kind of picked back up without the sub sort of verbally saying he was ready to go again, at least not on camera, which again, I know porn is fantasy. It's all, all likelihood that did happen, but someone did edit this, you know, very purposefully to, to show all that stuff happening. And I'm not sure why I'm so hung up about this. I mean, I know sub drop is a thing and I know different ways about, and I, I've not really experienced it, but you know, I know it's a thing. I'm just really preoccupied that they decided to show that without, you know, the sub really establishing his consent. I've ended up watching this porn, you know, at least four or five more times after that first view, even if I wasn't, you know, actively getting off to it. So I guess my question is, how do I reconcile this weird feeling I have that, you know, I, I, I guess guilt watching this sub experience drop and then go right back into it, you know, a few minutes later. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Amp from What's the Safe Word, a kink-friendly sex education channel that specializes in covering and unpacking in a humorous and delightful way taboo subjects. Hey, Amp, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing, Dan? Good. Uh, so the first thing I want to do is, is define this term, subdrop, because I've heard it used in two different ways that mean two entirely different things. I, and you can tell me which is correct or if people just use this interchangeably. I've heard subdrop 
used to refer to uh, a submissive in a you know an intense BDSM scene who just like falls into a really deep place of submission and is suddenly able to take more pain and more degradation and, and endure and enjoy a more intense scene that they dropped into it. That's how I've heard it used. I've also heard it used to refer to uh, the sub falling out of the scene that they dropped out or they had the safe word and whatever was happening wasn't working for them. And, and, and you know, and they parachuted out of scene. They 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 asked the the top to stop whatever the top was doing, and that's kind of how the caller uh, uses the term. What is the term? What what does it mean? Who which usage is correct, or are both usages correct? I personally, I think that both usages can be correct. I've always kind of referred to it as what happens after a scene when when your endorphin or your your levels, your chemicals in your body kind of drop. But I think that at least what the caller is talking about. Uh, it can happen whenever someone goes through an intense scene or sensation that might have been happening during this porn, uh, and they went from a very high level of like euphoria to all of a sudden, oh no, my body's not feeling so good. And it can happen within an instant, within a scene. So like when those endorphins and those chemicals that have you blind high are gone, you, you, you almost feel like you have a fainting sensation. Um, it can happen instantaneously, or like we said, it can happen a few hours, even a few days after a scene. So, so um, you know, just, people people talk people talk about long distance running, and there's this endorphin rush, right? You you push your body to mm-hmm. the limits, and there's this endorphin rush. Your body only has a certain amount of whatever endorphin that might be on hand at any given time, and you can use it up by you know pushing yeah. yourself too far too hard. So, is this a kind of a third definition of sub drop that your your endorphins were pumping along, but you pumped yourself out of them, and then suddenly you're dropping out of the scene because the endorphins that made it possible for you to push your limits or allow your limits to be pushed are all gone, and, and you kind of crater. Yeah, I don't know that it's a third so much as it's just rounding out that kind of that feeling of you are going into a very intense, like, a, a part where your body's chemicals are all being used at once. Mm-hmm. So, like, all of these different definitions of sub-drop kind of fall under this, this feeling of high, euphoric, all of a sudden to a, a very low, kind of depressed, state almost or or if you're in a scene a very exhausted state um so it's just it's your your body coming back down so what is the generally acknowledged bdsm best practice when it comes to sub drop to be conscious of it and then react to it how when it happens there's so many factors there i mean when it comes to like porn it it might be that certain people aren't eating properly because they want to be properly cleaned out for a scene if there's like animal um, but it's it's a lot of reading your your body language with your partners. If you're with partners, um, it might have been part of the director pushing this sub too far. Best practices is just making sure you know your limits. Uh, you know what your body looks like and how it responds to scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just being able to communicate that is really, really important. Well, that's best practice for the bottom. What's best practice for the top when a sub experiences <laughs> this? Uh, again, Communicating first and foremost, making sure you negotiate, you know, what they look like when they're having a good time or a bad time. What are their limits? What have they done before? Mm-hmm. Um, because surprises can really throw a wrench into any scene. And it, that could be what drove this sub or any sub to to drop out of nowhere. And when the sub drops, what do you do? If you're in a scene with somebody and they experience sub drop, what do you do if you're the top? Well, you, sure, you provide aftercare. And the caller kind of mentioned that he's familiar with aftercare um, and that it didn't really look like it happened. Um, so you just have to make sure that you, you know what aftercare looks like for that person. You provide maybe a snack. Maybe they just need like some more sugar to their body. Maybe they need 
you know, some hugs or some like affirmations that they're doing a good job. Um, they just need to cool down or step out of the scene, get some water. Um, it, it's, it's also another personal thing where you know how to get that, the chemicals in your body back up. For me, it's like playing video games, you know, <laughs> having some snacks and just relaxing for a few hours. Okay, so aftercare, for those of you who aren't in the BDSM community or aren't familiar with BDSM terms, that's just providing comfort to to a sub. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in a scene, you know, the dom may be, you know, very aggressive and degrading uh, and domineering. That's the dom's job. Uh, and after the scene, the aftercare is about sometimes lavishing affection and praise uh, and comfort on the sub that you were just or the top was just really – not abusing, but putting through their paces and enjoying this mutually pr- pleasurable sensation play or, or, or bondage or degradation scene or whatever it was, that aftercare is praise and affection and, and intimacy and physical contact, not just walking away from somebody after you've flogged them and tied them up and used them in whatever way that you guys could both wanted to enjoy each other. It's affection and, and physical contact and comfort and holding someone. Mm-hmm. And, and no one sub the same way there's no limits that, that everyone falls under. There's no aftercare that everyone falls under. Everyone's different. Okay, it sounds like in the in the amateur video that he watched that there was some aftercare, that they rubbed the bottoms back, that they brought him water, that they paused, they, they ended the scene, and they showed that. They showed the scene ending and everyone stepping out of their roles. And then he objects to the fact that there was no verbal consent to to start back in again, that the scene just resumed mm-hmm. after the aftercare was edited into this porn clip. And they could have just edited the dropout, edited the aftercare or the mid-care, since it happened in the middle of the scene, out. But they showed it. And I think that's a positive thing, that, that, that they showed it. And maybe it was an omission on the part of these amateur pornographers that they didn't show a, a verbal assent from all to, to resume playing but to show the care in that moment when the sub kind of fell out of the scene, when he experienced that particular iteration of sub drop, I think was commendable on the part of the amateur mm-hmm. pornographers. Would have been even more commendable if they'd shown that uh, verbal consent to, to resume the play. But to get to the caller's questions, Amp, how does he reconcile the guilt uh, he felt watching the <laughs> sub drop uh, to drop out and then get back in? And should he feel guilty about that? About it? enjoying what he was watching, even though at some point it was a little too much for the sub. Sure. I mean, the, the best way to, to reconcile all that is, is making sure that the porn that he watches is ethical. And he kind of mentions that a little bit. Yeah. Where can he find ethically produced BDSM porn? Yeah. I mean, personally having worked with in front and behind the camera, some, some sites like kink.com is one of my favorites when it comes to kink, because they actually do, before the scene, they kind of do an interview and then they do the scene. And then, and then after the scene, they break it down and they talk about, you know, what went well during the scene, what might have not been the best. They, they tell you how the scene went. And having been in scenes with them before, like there, there's been scenes where I think everything's going great. And then I have that drop. I'm, you know, hanging, physically flying high, like being suspended. And all of a sudden my body just conks out because I've been pushed to my limit. Mm. And so after that scene was done, you know, we were able to talk about that. And I think it's important to find ethical porn producers that you enjoy, that you're you know, paying for because you should pay for your good porn. And just, you know, if he's really, really worried, he can look into the company itself, maybe go on Twitter, see if the model, you know, enjoys the scene or not. But, you know, at the very heart of it, he should be looking and finding porn that he feels good about watching. Because if he's feeling bad about this, 
maybe there's just certain parts to that porn that just didn't feel right for him. It wasn't ethical in his own perspective. I think Twitter is a good recommendation because you can find a lot of sex workers still. We'll see what happens mm-hmm. now with SESTA, yeah. uh, which we've talked about on the show before. You can find a lot of porn performers and sex workers, and of course, porn is a kind of sex work, on Twitter, and you can get to know people. And often, porn performers and sex workers on Twitter are very open about the things that they enjoy. And so if you find somebody in a BDSM film and you can find that person on Twitter, it won't take you long to, to figure out whether S&M is something that they do because they love or something they're just doing for the paycheck. And when they're doing it just for the paycheck, that can seem a little squicky to watch. But if they're doing it because it's the kind of sex that they most enjoy, you can infer that when you see that person in their BDSM film, which they'll often tweet about or link to on their own Twitter accounts, that this is at least when it comes to the the you know, joyful participation of all ethically produced BDSM porn. So get to know your BDSM porn performers caller, I would recommend. And Twitter is a great place mm-hmm. to do that. And you can feel a little less conflicted about enjoying their eroticized suffering when you see it in a video clip. Absolutely. So yeah, before we let you go, for listeners who didn't catch you last time on the show, tell us what What's the Safe Word is and where they can find it. Absolutely. Uh, so What's the Safe Word is a YouTube channel that I run with a number of other people and guests and, and performers of all sorts, whether it's adult performers or just, you know, licensed therapists. And we talk about different topics, be it sex and kink or just sex relationships or LGBT issues. And we do it in a fun, approachable, you know, destigmatizing way. You know, we're having fun with our kinks. We're not having fun at people who have, you know, weird, strange kinks. We're trying to, you know, break this down so people don't feel like they can't have the sex that they want. And we do it every week, uh, and we always have really fun, interesting guests, of which um, you've actually been on before. So, <laughs> Yeah, I was going to mention that at the end, that you and I did. I, I appeared on What's the Safe Word. I'm a fan of What's the Safe Word, and I've recommended it to others, and I was really happy to appear on it. We talked about kink discordant relationships. If you want to hear me and Amp talk more about kink and talk about a subject that comes up a lot here on the Lovecast, where one person has a kink and another person doesn't have that kink, or they have different kinks and they're in a kink discordant relationship and how you make that work. I talked about that with Amp at Great length on a what's the safe word episode um thank you so much for for jumping on the the phone today i really appreciate it no thank you for having me on and keep doing the good work you too hey dan this is older gay guy living in the south 57 and um this is not really a sex question it's more of a relationship question i came out later Uh, i've had a few short-term relationships last one lasted around a year Ended, didn't want it to, totally in love with the guy, but it couldn't work because of his situation. So I am just really trying to figure out what to do with my life. I'm by myself, living in the South, and wanting to know where to go, what to do. I just would really like to find someone to spend the rest of my life with, and it feels like time's running out. I'm an attractive guy. I'm a professional so just really just want to get your advice about what maybe to do. Should I stay where I am and try to uh, find someone, which is not easy to meet guys around where I live, or should I change my life? My advice would be to move to a place where you're going to have more options. Queers tend to clump up in cities. There are queers out there in the boonies. There are queers in the south. There are queers in rural areas and small towns. And many of those queers are very happy to be in those places and don't want to be told by city mouse queer to move to the big city. 
But as a dating mating strategy, moving to the big city, moving to a more populous liberal place, and there are more populous liberal places in the South. There is Atlanta. There is Nashville. There are college towns where you will have more options. Is a good strategy. The more you have to choose from, the more you have to choose from. Paradoxically, the more everyone else in that town that you move to has to choose from, the more they have to choose from. The paradox of choice. The more choices you have, sometimes that can create a kind of paralysis. There are people in cities like Los Angeles or New York or Chicago or San Francisco or Seattle where there are just so many queers that they have a hard time picking just one. And I've talked to queers in smaller towns or rural areas who preferred sort of stabilizing effect of there aren't a lot of choices. And I met a guy and we're going to make it work because we don't want to move. And this is the guy I can have. And we're going to figure out how to work this rather than I have an endless supply of guys to choose from on Grindr. So I'm never going to settle on any one guy, which is not to say that people who meet on Grindr don't sometimes settle down. They do. I know lots of same-sex couples in lasting, loving, committed, stable, and sometimes even monogamous relationships who met on the apps. Most gay couples, 70 plus percent these days, meet via apps, not bars, not work, not on the street, not at the YMCA, on apps. And we're talking about relationships, not hookups. Relationships begin on apps. I talk to people in rural areas who say that Scruff, in particular, that app, made it possible for them to stay in their small town or in this rural area that they enjoy living in for other reasons, lifestyle reasons, social reasons, family reasons. And it made it possible for them to have a dating life and a romantic life because it hooked them up with the others like them who stayed or moved to those areas. <laughs> that it makes me tense to even think about visiting, let alone moving to or living in. So my city mouse queer advice to you, if you want more options, if you want to change your life, is to move to the big city. That doesn't mean New York, Chicago, San Francisco, Los Angeles, or Seattle. The big city can be the nearest big liberal blue dot in the Red Sea that is the South. That can be a college town or it can be a regional gay mecca like your Atlantas or your Nashvilles. Good luck. Hey, Dan. Uh, straight mail from the Southeast here calling in reference to uh, the caller in episode 614 who said that he was conflicted about a recent experience with someone uh, regarding consent. As a person who can identify with what he was saying, I think that you hit the mark on the head. However, I feel like there was a very small detail that was, that was overlooked here, which is that you can always say, as a male, you know, knowing that your duty is to be clear and, and have consent, to also say, hey, it's okay if you say no, there will be no negative repercussions. I will not lash out in any way, shape, or form. You are in a safe place. If you say no, I understand that deep stuff. I won't get butthurt. So just throwing it out there, you can definitely say that. Hi, Dan. I've got a comment for the woman in episode 614 whose ex won't let her see his kid because of his psycho-abusive ex-partner and I just want to say I'm a late 40s woman and I date almost exclusively men who have ex-wives and often who have kids and about 95% of them claim that their ex is psycho or abusive which statistically means that there are a hell of a lot of women running around who are psycho and abusive and I just always now 
take those claims with a grain of salt. There may be a completely different reason why he doesn't now want his girlfriend to see his kid because the kid is speaking and the ex will know about um, the girlfriend. Uh, it may be that they're not actually really separated and he doesn't want her to know he's got a girlfriend because she thinks they're separated and they're not. Or he may have told her that it's a trial separation or you know, he may have left her because, or she may have kicked him out because he was having an affair. You know, why did they split up when they had a one-year-old child? So I just think always for women when you're dating men who um, have ex-wives or mothers of their kids, just take it with a grain of salt when they tell you that their ex is psychotic or abusive or mentally ill or unstable or a terrible mother. They all say that. And in the vast majority of cases, it's not true. Hey, Dan, this is in response to the caller uh, who had called in to see whether or not it was kosher to incorporate a lollipop during oral. Uh, holy crap, I was dying throughout that entire episode. Dan, you nailed it on the head when you had said that incorporating food into sex is a sexual fantasy of a 16-year-old. Um, yeah, I have experience doing just that. When I was 16, uh, my partner and I thought it would be a good idea to use whipped cream in and around my vagina during sex. <laughs> While I did not get a yeast infection, I did get the worst UTI of my life. I was in so much pain that my mother had to uh, bring me to the ER and sit with me while I explained to nurses while I was there. So not only was it humiliating, but it was also not sexy at all and extremely painful. So yeah, I would recommend playing with food before or after sex, but dear God, not during. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. The deadline for entering Hump, my dirty little film festival, is coming. Coming up in mid-September. You're going to want to make your Hump films now. Go to humpfilmfest.com and click on Submit for information on entering Hump. There's $20,000 in cash prizes awarded to the filmmakers by audience ballot, including a $10,000 Best in Show award. And every filmmaker whose film goes out on tour with the Hump Tour in 2019 gets a percentage of every single ticket sold on the tour. We are a good deal for filmmakers, also a good deal and a great deal and a fun deal for audiences. For more info, go to humpfilmfest.com. Follow AMP from What's the Safe Word on Twitter at pup underscore Amp, and you should definitely check out Amp's videos at Watts the Safe Word on YouTube, and that's Watt spelled W-A-T-T-S. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. And I'll be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. 